We are nearly to the end of the second year of war raging in Europe with no end in sight. Outgunned, outnumbered. What do you think keeps Ukrainian soldiers going? You you know, it's not just in the Ukraine. This is a, a question that every soldier faces in every war. What, what, what keeps you going in the midst of a battle? You know, maybe it's the camaraderie of the unit. This is why armies work so hard on creating camaraderie, unit cohesion, because you may be terrified going into battle, but you don't want to let your buddy next to you down. So you press on. Maybe it's the love of a, of a sweetheart back home. How many times have we watched war movies where one of the heroes pulls out his wallet and there's a, there's a picture of a loved one or a letter that he's been saving that keeps him going? Maybe it's just the knowledge that collectively their lives depend on winning, even if it means losing their own life. What keeps a soldier going in the midst of a battle that threatens his very existence? You know, none of us sitting here this morning are in a war. But life often does feel like a battle, doesn't it? Oh, our our life is not on the line. We're not about to die. But whether it's raising our kids or building a career or just getting through your to-do list today, it often feels like the universe is against us. Like, Like something is actually opposing us, keeping us from making progress. We know better. We, we know that, in fact, the DMV does not have a personal grudge against us. But it sure does feel like it. What if the universe, or at least part of it, actually is against us? What if that feeling we have is not irrational? You know, according to Christianity, we do not live in a neutral world. This is not one big cosmic Switzerland. No, no, we understand as Christians that there's a spiritual battle going on every day behind the scenes a battle between good and evil, a battle between God and Satan. And in all sorts of ways, that spiritual battle manifests itself in history writ large, but also spills over into our lives. Now, Christianity is very clear. We should not think of this battle as a a matched contest whose, whose outcome is uncertain. No, Christianity is very clear. 
God wins. We, we know the end of the battle. But here we are in the thick of it, and it is a battle all the same. The question that I want you to consider this morning is first, whose side are you on? And second, if you're already a Christian, if you understand yourself to be on God's side, how do you intend to persevere in this battle? How are you going to make it through to the end? That is what the final vision that God gave Daniel in the book of Daniel is all about, making it to the end of the battle. And it's what we're going to look at this morning. So turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, this is found on page 793, 793. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 10 and chapter 11 this morning. There's a lot of text. I'm not going to be able to read all of it. Uh, you're going to be helped, though, by keeping your Bibles open because I'm going to be referring to it repeatedly. Daniel chapter 10 and chapter 11 is what we're looking at. Next week, we'll conclude with Daniel chapter 12. Let me just read the first verse of uh, Daniel chapter 10 to set the scene. Daniel 10, verse one. In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. The message was true and was about a great conflict. He understood the message and had understanding of the vision. Let me stop there. Chapters 10 to 12 are actually one final vision. There, there, were, there are four visions that Daniel receives beginning in chapter seven. Chapter 10 begins the last of them, the fourth and final vision. Chapter 10 actually gives us the context of the vision. Chapter 11 is the main part of the vision. Chapter 12, which we'll look at next week, is the conclusion of the vision. Now we're told when this, this message, this vision comes to Daniel, it's 536 BC. Cyrus, the, the, the prince of Persia, the king of Persia, uh, has allowed the exiles to return to Jerusalem. He's the one that gave the decree allowing the return to Jerusalem. It's recorded for us in Ezra chapter one. But we're about two years into that project now. Daniel did not go with them. He stayed. And the project back in Jerusalem is stalled. News has come back that there's... There's difficulty, there's opposition. The, the work is not going well. And so Daniel's discouraged. And in the midst of that discouragement, God gives him a vision, we're told here, about a great conflict. Now, the purpose of this message from God is, is clear. God has sent this word. He sent this message to strengthen Daniel and the people of God, the exiles, to persevere in this in this conflict, to not give up. And that message to Daniel and to the exiles is a message to us as well. I want to convince you of just one thing this morning. If you're a Christian, persevere. That's it. That's what I want to convince you of. Do not give up. Persevere in the battle. Now, 
God gives Daniel, and Daniel then gives us three reasons to persevere, which we're gonna look at this morning. We should persevere because God is protecting us. We should persevere because God in the midst of the battle is refining us. And we should persevere because God will rescue us. We don't have to persevere forever. Now, as we consider this message, what I want you to consider more than anything else is, is this a message for you? Let's start then in Daniel chapter 10 with this first reason for persevering. Persevere because God is protecting us. We'll pick it up in verse two. I'm gonna read all of chapter 10. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three full weeks. I didn't eat any rich food, no meat or wine entered my mouth, and I didn't put any oil on my body until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men who were with me did not see it, but a great terror fell on them and they ran and hid. I was left alone looking at this great vision. No strength was left in me. My face grew deathly pale and I was powerless. I heard the words he said. And when I heard them, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Suddenly a hand touched me and set me shaking on my hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, you are a man treasured by God. Understand the words that I'm saying to you. Stand on your feet for I have now been sent to you. After he said this to me, I stood trembling. Don't be afraid, Daniel, he said to me. For from the first day that you purposed to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your prayers were heard. I have come because of your prayers. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me after I had been left there with the king of, kings of Persia. Now I have come to help you understand what will happen to your people in the last days, for the vision refers to those days. While he was saying these words to me, I turned my face towards the ground and was speechless. Suddenly one with human likeness touched my lips. I opened my mouth and said to the one standing in front of me, my Lord, because of the vision, anguish overwhelms me and I'm powerless. How can someone like me, your servant, speak with someone like you, my Lord? Now I have no strength and there's no breath in me. Then the one with the human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, don't be afraid, you who are treasured by God. Peace to you, be very strong. As he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. He said, do you know why I've come to you? I must return at once to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I leave, the prince of Greece will come. However, I will tell you what is recorded in the book of truth. No one has the courage to support me against those princes except Michael, your prince. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to strengthen and protect him. We'll stop there. Daniel, we're told here at the beginning, has, has mourned and prayed these first 21 days of the first month of the year. Now that should strike us because that's when Passover happens. And Passover, of course, is a great celebration. It's a, it's a feast. But Daniel has actually mourned 
through the Passover celebrations and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's been struggling in prayer all the way through it. This is how deep Daniel's discouragement is at the news that has come from Jerusalem. And on the 24th day of the month, a few days after the festival has ended, all of a sudden he receives this vision. A, a man, we're told, clearly a heavenly being from that description in, in verses five and six. Uh, a heavenly being clothed in, in priestly garments. That's the point of the white linen and the, and the gold sash. And he appears before Daniel above the Tigris River. Again, clearly heavenly. Now, no one else sees it. He's got guys with him, but no one else sees it. And yet, though they don't see anything, they are all gripped with fear, like something's going on, and they all run away. And Daniel is left alone, we're told there, at the end of verse 6, or verse 5 and 6. Now, who is this man? Who is this figure that he sees above the Tigris River? Some have suggested that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And the, and the main reason for this is because this exact same imagery is used by John in Revelation chapter 1 to describe his vision of Jesus. I think, however, this is not a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus. I think John is using this imagery to describe Jesus when he sees him later, but, but for reasons that, that will become clear, I, I think this is not actually Jesus. I think this is an angel. Maybe it's Gabriel again. Gabriel has shown up several times already. This could be Gabriel again. Uh, the, the point is, it's a heavenly being, and Daniel's response is to fall to the ground with his face to the ground with the wind knocked out of him. I, I mean, he's, he's, he's speechless. Now, now what, what I hope you notice as I read through that is over the next few verses, th this man is going to touch Daniel repeatedly. Three times he touches Daniel to, to strengthen him. You see that there in verse 10. Suddenly a hand touched me and set me shaking on my hands and knees. And we see it again in verse 16. Suddenly with human, one with human likeness touched my lips. And all of a sudden he's able to speak. And then again in verse 18, after he's been laid out again, like he gets up and then he sees the vision again and it knocks him to the ground again. The man touches him a third time. And in verse 18, he touches him and strengthens him. Twice, he assures Daniel that he is treasured by God, that he's loved by God. You see that there in verse 11, where he says, Daniel, you are a man treasured by God. And then at the end of, this, of him speaking to him there in verse 19, he says, don't be afraid, you who are treasured by God. So even though this vision has knocked him down and knocked the breath out of him, he's being assured of God's love. And then quite interestingly, it's through his speaking to him, through, through this angel speaking to him, that Daniel is finally strengthened. You see that there in verse 19. He said, don't be afraid, you who are treasured by God, peace to you, be very strong. As he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Now, before we even get to the main vision, the first thing that Daniel learns is that this angel has been in a battle 
He, he, he's been battling against what he calls the prince of Persia. And in fact, the length of time that he's in this battle is the same length of time, 21 days, three weeks, that, that Daniel has been mourning and, and in prayer. And, and you notice there that, that the angel says that he wasn't even able to get to him until, until Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help him. There in verse 13. What's going on with this angelic battle? Well, the battle was clearly meant to prevent this angel from coming to Daniel. Why, why would some other angels not want this angel to come to Jan, Daniel? Well, uh, he tells us, right? I, I was sent with a message for you, a, a, a word for you, so that, that you would understand what is going to happen to you and your people in the last days? That's what he says there in verse 14. I've come to help you understand what will happen to your people in the last days, for the vision refers to those days. The, the, the message that he's been sent to give was meant to give peace to Daniel and, and, and courage to Daniel. That's, that's the exhortation in verse 19. Don't be afraid, you who are treasured by God. Peace to you, be very strong. So this angel has been sent with a message to strengthen Daniel, to encourage him. And yet he's been opposed by other angels who don't want that message to get through. But, but with, with help, he, he gets through, he, he delivers the message. And then, then what's gonna happen after he's done? Well, he tells us in verse 20, he, he's gonna leave and he's gonna go back to the battle. He's gonna keep fighting against the princes of Persia. And after that, the prince of Greece, we're told in verse 20. This is a strange passage. And here's why it's strange. We live in a world that to all appearances is just a material universe. There, there's nothing but matter. All, all that happens in this world happens because of cause and effect as matter acts on matter. And whatever can't be explained that way, we attribute then to human agency. That, and that's it. That's all there is in the world. That's what this world looks like. But friends, the Bible is very clear. That is not the whole story. There's a spiritual world, an unseen world, behind the scenes, as it were. Demons and angels, demonic powers, angelic powers are at war with one another. And some of those powers are bent on the destruction of God's people, the, the, the discouragement of God's people. They, they don't want God to be able to speak to his people. And yet other angelic powers are devoted to protecting God's people, as we see here. We, we need to take this on board. And this is, this is hard for us as modern people. Demonic powers animate and guide human powers, even nations, because they don't want God's people to receive God's word. Because it is through his word, through his message, that God's people are strengthened. They, they want God's people to be, a pro, to, to be deprived of the assistance that God's word brings. 
They they want God's people to be discouraged in their suffering. They, They want God's people even to despair that deliverance is coming. But in fact, as Daniel 10 makes very clear for us, God is protecting his people. God deploys his angels to to, to guide history and events to ensure that his word, his message of salvation gets to his people. And we can see this not just on the pages of Daniel chapter 10, we can see this throughout history. We we, we can see this in, 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 in the early years after the church when for a variety of reasons, it, it appeared that the scriptures were going to be lost as various forces sought to destroy the scriptures. And, and yet, as we look at history, we see that God faithfully preserved his word for his people. As it got translated in all sorts of different places. We can see this at the time of the Reformation when it seemed as if the gospel had been lost. And yet God raised up men like like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others to to recover that gospel. And at just the right time, right before that, you you get the invention of the printing press so that the Bible gets printed and translated and circulated everywhere. We can can see this, I think, in in the modern missions movement as... God uses something as terrible as World War II to inspire servicemen who had been all over the world to want to go back out to the world, taking the gospel with them. So often, you know, missionary endeavors are seen as exercises in colonialism. Friends, that's not true. Missionary endeavors are exercises in getting God's word out to God's people wherever they are, even before they know they're God's people, because it's by hearing that word and responding to it that he's going to bring them in to his kingdom. God is engaged in a great battle on your behalf to get his word to you because it is through his word that you are strengthened for all that lies ahead because it is his word that brings life. It is his word that heals. It is his word that assures you of his love. What role do we have to play in this battle? Friends, the the weapons of spiritual warfare that have been given to us are the ordinary means of grace. That's what we call them, the ordinary means of grace. And we see Daniel using them right here. Prayer, fasting, receiving and listening to God's word, the scriptures, the the, the fellowship of God's people, You know, every morning, I get up 
And after I've made my coffee, I do need coffee first. One of, one of God's common grace gifts to humanity. I go into my study and I open up God's word. Every morning, this is what I do. Because I understand that I'm in a battle here. And, and, and so what, 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 what does my use of the, the ordinary means of grace look like? It, it looks like me spending time every morning in the scriptures. And I'm usually reading various parts of scriptures, but I'm always reading the passage that's going to be preached that coming Sunday. Whether I'm preaching or not, I'm going to read that passage every morning because I want that word in particular to be plowing up my heart, preparing me to, with you, hear from God's word together. And then I pull out my directory, which I always keep in my Bible. And after praying for my own family and for my schedule, I pray for you. Because I understand that you're in this battle with me. And so this morning, I, I looked at page 10 because it's the 10th. And I prayed for Jim and Dulcia and, and for Oliver and Christina and for Dylan and Molly and for Larry and Elaine and for Philip and for Michael and Juliet and for Kaz and Sue Ann and for Benji and for PK and Hannah and for Paul and for Kevin and Lilia, even though she's on page 11, she's married to Kevin, so she kind of snuck on <laughs> to page 10. So you get prayed for twice. And, I, and I, pr I prayed for those people by name. And I prayed the truths of Daniel 10 and 11 for those people specifically. Because we're in a battle. And yet God has given us all the weapons that we need. So brothers and sisters, do not neglect the, the, the weapons that you've been given by God for this battle. Don't be like a soldier who rushes out into battle and has left his rifle back in the barracks. Don't do that. No, through the weapons that God has entrusted us, in the scriptures, in the prayer, in, in the fellowship of the church, God is actually fighting on our behalf. God is working through those weapons to keep the malevolent intention of Satan and his demons from coming to fruition in your life and in the life of this church. We, we, we don't want to be the kind of Christians that are like too cool, too cool for spiritual warfare, too, too, too cool for, for prayer, understanding that, that there, there are, in fact, malevolent forces coming after this church. No, we, we want to be the kind of Christians who take this seriously, that we live in a world that is seen and unseen, material and spiritual, and we give ourselves to that battle. We do it, though, confidently, because we know that God is deploying all of his power, all of his resources to protect us. So, Christian, persevere, because God is protecting us. But not, not only that, second... Persevere because God is refining us. Look at Daniel chapter 11, verse 2. The angel now says to Daniel, Now I will tell you the truth. 
Three more kings will arise in Persia and the fourth will be far richer than the others. By the power he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a warrior king will arise. He will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. But as soon as he is established, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his descendants. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled because his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others beside them. Okay, let me just stop there. The angel now proceeds to begin to explain this great conflict that is ahead. And in the opening verses, what I just read, he covers what we've already seen in previous visions. There's going to be the Persian empire there in verse two, which will be replaced by the Greek empire of Alexander the Great in verse three. But, But then Alexander is going to die and his kingdom is going to be broken up into four kingdoms that won't go to his heirs, but that will go to others. We've, we've seen all this before. But now all of a sudden we're introduced to two new kings, the king of the south and the king of the north. Look at verse five. The king of the south will grow powerful, but one of his commanders will grow more powerful and will rule a kingdom greater than his. After some years, they will form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to seal the agreement. She will not retain power and his strength will not endure. She will be given up together with her entourage, her father and the one who supported her during those times. In the place of the king of the south, one from her family will rise up, come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He will take action against them and triumph. He will take even their gods captive to Egypt with their metal images and their precious articles of silver and gold. For some years, he will stay away from the king of the north who will enter the kingdom of the king of the south and then return to his own land. And I'm gonna stop there because it just keeps going like that for at least another 35 verses. And your head begins to get dizzy. Like which king of the south is this and which king of the north is this and what, you know, what's, what's going on? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. All all the way at least to verse 35 of this chapter, what's being described is the centuries-long conflict between two of those successor kingdoms to the empire of Alexander the Great, the Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt in the south and the Seleucid empire, whose capital was to the north in, in Syria. So this whole thing is being described from the perspective of someone who is in Jerusalem. There's a kingdom to the north headquartered in Syria. There's a kingdom to the south down in Egypt, and they're at war with each other. Jerusalem caught in the middle. And indeed, historically, this is exactly what happened. Jerusalem is in Palestine. Palestine is the land bridge between the empire of Egypt in the south, the the, the Seleucid empire to the north. And, and in fact, if we had time and if this was a history lesson and not a sermon, we, I could go and show you how all of the various details that get unpacked in the rest of chapter 11 kind of map on to the history of the centuries-long warfare between the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemaic Empire in the south. I mean, just one example. You, you, you heard me read about... Um, uh, after some years, they will form an alliance. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to seal the agreement. In fact, this is exactly what happens. The daughter of Ptolemy, Bernice, is given in marriage to the grandson of, of Seleucus, the, 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 the initial ruler of that empire, to try to seal an alliance. It doesn't work. Everything falls apart. Warfare continues, and it continues for centuries. What we have in chapter 11 is really an expansion in detail of the 62 weeks 
from Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. A, a, a period that, that the previous vision described as difficult times. And now we know why. War will repeatedly sweep through the promised land back and forth for centuries. Culminating finally in the worst of the kings of the north. He's introduced in verse 21 as a despised person. Royal honors will not be given to him, but he will come during a time of peace and seize the kingdom by intrigue. This is a reference to somebody we've already seen, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We gave a lot of attention to him when we looked at chapter 8. And his rule and reign is described beginning in verse 21, but let me pick it up with verse 28. The king of the north will return to his land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action, then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will come again to the south, but this time will not be like the first. Ships of Katim will come against him, and being intimidated, he will withdraw. Then he will rage against the Holy Covenant and take action. On his return, he will favor those who abandon the Holy Covenant. His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will be strong and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many. Yet they will fall by the sword and flame and be captured and plundered for a time. When they fall... They will be helped by some, but many others will join them insincerely. Some of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Verse 29 predicts that the second attempted invasion by Antiochus IV Epiphanes into Egypt. That actually happened. And yet you notice it was stopped. Ships of Katim came and intimidated him, so we withdrew. This is, this is in fact exactly what happened. The ships of Katim is a reference actually to Rome. Rome had sent uh, forces and, uh, I don't know what his title was, general probably, uh, to, to confront Antiochus there in Egypt. He actually confronts him and draws a circle in the sand around him and says, you cannot leave this circle until you have given me an answer that I can take back to the Senate. Because what the Senate had said was, no, you cannot attack Egypt. Because if you do, we will come against you. And indeed, Antiochus, seeing the writing on the wall, as it were, acquiesced and withdrew and was furious at being stopped by Rome. And so on his way back through Palestine, through Jerusalem, he desecrates the temple. He set up an altar to Zeus. And his persecution, which had already begun, trying to force the Jews to give up their worship of God and to worship the Greek gods instead, became even more intense, a bloody persecution, forcing his program of Hellenization on them. All of that is what's going on there in those opening verses of 28 down through 31, 32. So what's going on here? We've already seen that God is protecting his people. 
Why does he allow this, this brutal persecution? Why does he allow suffering in general? Well, I think we're told there in verses 32 to 35. And the conclusion there in verse 35, some of those who have insight will fall so they may be refined, purified, and cleansed. The suffering of God's people then, and it was brutal, was to be a process of refining, of purifying God's people, of cleansing them. Some, as we read in those verses, who who claim to be covenant people are going to fall away. That that suffering is going to make clear that they were never faithful, that they were never believers in God. But but others in the midst of the suffering are going to be emboldened to teach the people of God and to call them to faithfulness. And and we're told there that, that some are going to die as martyrs. They're going to fall. But the result will be a remnant people of God refined by their trials until the time of the end. Friends, this is as true today as it was then. Listen to, to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. It is not an unusual thing. It is a normal thing. Peter's going to say a little bit later in, that, in, his, in his first letter, he's going to say in, in, in chapter four, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. When, when suffering comes, when testing comes, it, it's not that something went wrong. It's not even that you did something wrong. No, it is the Lord. He means to display the worth of our faith, the the preciousness of our faith in him as we persevere through trials. Just as God is sovereign over history, just as God is sovereign over the demonic and angelic powers that are battling, so he is sovereign over the trials that he brings into your life. And in this, in this suffering that he brings into our lives, we are simply following the pattern that our Savior laid down for us. Jesus said in Luke 24, verse 26 to his disciples, after after he'd gotten up from the dead and they're, they're, they're amazed at what they're seeing, and he says to them, it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things, meaning his crucifixion and his burial, and only then enter into glory. That the kingdom of God 
And, and all of its glory comes through suffering. The kingdom of God does not come through our power. The kingdom of God does not come through our political might. This is what Jesus said to, to Peter when, when Peter drew his sword wanting to protect Jesus from being arrested. He says in Matthew 26, verse 52, Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Friends, how could it be any other way in a fallen world? The very nature of sin is to want a shortcut to glory. The very nature of human pride is to think that we deserve glory. But Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, suffered on our behalf so that we might attain what we do not deserve. And that is the glory of heaven itself. But are the disciples greater than the master? Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse 17, that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, that sounds like glory. But then he goes on, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Brothers and sisters, just as the Jews suffered through 62 long metaphorical weeks of conflict and difficulty before the Messiah appeared the first time, so do we in this last short week before Christ returns the second time. John saw this in his vision in Revelation chapter 12. He writes, so the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. We do not live in spiritual Switzerland. We just don't. The, the, the spiritual battles in the heavenly realms are reflected in our lives here below. And it is part of God's plan. So Christian, are you experiencing suffering? I know some of you are. I know that some in this room are, are experiencing suffering at work because they're known to be a Christian and their faith in Christ is despised in their workplace. I, I know that some in this room are suffering at school because Christians are looked down on at the particular school that they're attending. I know that some of you are suffering in your families because your family members don't respect your faith in Christ. Maybe they despise it. Or maybe they've taken a really different interpretation of what it means to follow Jesus and they ridicule you for not following their way. When the Lord got a hold of my life in college and I went home and told my family about it, my dad cussed me out and he stopped speaking to me for months. 
because he felt like I was throwing my life away. Suffering is real. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will experience it. But, but the question is, how are you responding to it? Are, are you embittered because of the suffering? Are you, are you giving in to discouragement because of the suffering? Maybe you're allowing the suffering that you're experiencing to, to serve as an excuse for, for self-pity or self-indulgence. You know what, what suffering is meant to do in our lives? It's meant to, to drive us towards holiness. That's that picture of refining. As we become more like Jesus. So Christian, what needs to change about your perspective on your suffering so that as James tells us, we can count it all joy as God brings various trials into our lives? You know, suffering as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, it is not evidence of God's neglect of you. It's proof of God's love of you. And I think that's the perspective we need. That as the Lord brings suffering into our lives because of our faith in Jesus, he is actually shaping us in the image of Christ who suffered to the point of giving his life for us. And he's, and he's doing that for a purpose, for a reason. He's doing it to fit us for heaven, to prepare us to be the kind of people who are at home, at home with the Lord, who suffered on the cross for you. What can you do this week in the midst of whatever suffering you're experiencing to bring that perspective to bear? Christian, persevere. Because God is protecting us and he is refining us. But perseverance can only last so long. If it's pressed too long, it breaks. And so the good news is, the day is going to come when our perseverance will end. Because third, God will rescue us. God will rescue us. Let's pick it up in verse 36. Then the king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God and he will say outrageous things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed because what, he has, what has been decreed will be accomplished. He will not show regard for the gods of his fathers, the God desired by women or for any other God because he will magnify himself above all. Instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God his fathers did not know with gold, silver, precious stones, and riches. He will, deal with the strength, he will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many and distributing land as a reward. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, but the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. He will invade countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land and many will fall. 
These will escape from his power, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of the Ammonites. He will extend his power against the countries and not even the land of Egypt will escape. He will get control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the riches of Egypt. The Libyans and Cushites will also be in submission, but reports from the east and the north will terrify him. And he will go out with great fury to annihilate and completely destroy many. He will pitch his royal tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain, but he will meet his end with no one to help him. All right, all of a sudden in verse 36, what might be a different king appears because he's not called the king of the north or the king of the south, just the king. He's described in terms that we've seen in previous chapters, doing whatever he wants, exalting himself above every God, speaking outrageously against the Lord, the God of gods there in verse 36. And and we could keep going. And throughout this whole section, some of these details clearly apply to Antiochus IV Epiphanes. But a lot of them don't. So who is this, this king who rejects all gods because he exalts himself? Who is this king who worships strength and despises weakness, who rewards those who acknowledge him and gives power and land to his cronies? There in verse 39. He sounds a bit like a mafia boss, like countless dictators and authoritarian rulers that we have seen throughout history. In fact, he sounds like Antichrist. And I think that's the point. As we move through these verses, it's as if we are now looking past Antiochus and we're looking at Antichrist. And all of a sudden, as as it seems like the final Antichrist is coming into view, actually there in verse 40, we're back into this conflict between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And, And in verses 41 to 45, many, not all, many of those details seem to apply to Antiochus. Again, it, it, was, it was as if the, the ultimate Antichrist was coming into focus only to dissolve again into this human figure that we know from history. The people of God caught in the middle are about to be overwhelmed, but, but suddenly we're told he meets his end with no one to help him. Historically, we know that the Maccabean revolt was successful Jerusalem was liberated, the temple was cleansed and rededicated. And after losing battles to the north in Armenia and to the east in Persia, Antiochus IV Epiphanes died in 164 BC, probably of gangrene, as it's recorded that his flesh rotted away, swarming with worms. A fitting end to one who claimed to be Epiphanes, God manifest. You know, throughout this whole chapter, as we've watched this ebb and flow between the king of the north and the king of the south, and then this this demonic king almost, we've seen a kind of abstraction. Because these kings, as they move from one to the other, one to the other, one to the other, you know, they're never named. The movement back and forth seems to allow the passage to, to dissolve against multiple horizons of fulfillment so that this king could easily represent that fourth indescribable beast with iron teeth from Daniel 7. Or it could represent Antiochus or or it it could represent Titus 
the Roman general who would destroy Jerusalem. Or maybe it even represents someone further into the future. I think the point, as we've seen before, is that Antiochus and after him Titus are part of a larger pattern of powerful and prideful men and governments that would exalt themselves against God and against God's people. And we know where that pattern leads. I think this is what Daniel is seeing. It it leads ultimately to the person that Paul calls the man of lawlessness, the ultimate antichrist, who will set himself against Christ and his church at the end. John, in the book of Revelation, describes him as the beast who deceives the world for 42 months That would be three and a half years, blaspheming God and waging war against the saints. But the word that Daniel receives about any and every antichrist to come is that God will rescue his people. And he will do it at the appointed time. You you see that that phrase, it got repeated over and and over again. You see it in... um, Verse 27, the two kings whose hearts are bent on evil will speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for still the end will come at the appointed time. And then in verse 35, some of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. And then again in verse 36, he will be successful until the time of wrath is completed because what has been decreed will be accomplished. Friends, at the appointed time, Antichrist, whether it was Antiochus or Titus or whoever is yet to come in the future, at the appointed time, Antichrist will meet his end with no one to help him. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 how that will happen. Paul is looking forward to that day of of the ultimate Antichrist. And he says in verse eight, the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. Jesus Christ, the living word of God, God's message to us will rescue us from this great conflict now and at the end. And he will do it by the breath of his mouth, by his word. And that word is the gospel. You know, it's Advent. We're celebrating the first coming of Jesus Christ who came at first in weakness. But the good news of the gospel is that though Jesus appeared weak, it was in his weakness that he was winning the battle that we needed him to win. The good news is that on the cross, Jesus was not defeated. He was conquering. That that in his suffering for us, he was actually defeating Satan and all of his claims against us. That that in his death, he, he wasn't dying because he had been defeated. No, he was dying as our substitute for us. And in his resurrection, we now stand justified before God declared not guilty. And so we wait, persevering in hope for Jesus to return from heaven and rescue us from the coming wrath, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter one. Friend, if you're not a Christian, 
You need to understand that the conflict I've been trying to describe today is real, even if you don't see it. But I think you feel it. I think you know it to be true in your heart. This conflict is real, but the outcome is not uncertain. Paul goes on in 2 Thessalonians after describing Jesus' defeat of the man of lawlessness. He goes on to say that people perish eternally because they did not accept the love of the truth. What truth? The word of the gospel. They did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lies so that all will be condemned. Those who did not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. Friend, friend, do not turn away from this word that I'm telling you today. Do not turn away from this message from God, a message of love in Jesus Christ, because this world is not neutral and it is not what it seems Your life is more than it seems. And there is more at stake than you know. To turn away from the truth is to turn to a lie. And that lie will not save you on the last day. And the last day is coming at the appointed time. Friend, I'd love to talk to you more about what it would look like to turn away from the lie and instead turn to the truth of the gospel. And in the word about Jesus, find actually a victory, a victory over your sin, victory over guilt, and ultimately life forever with God. Come and talk to me about this or talk to the person that you came with, but do not turn away from the truth. Jesus came the first time. He is coming again. Today is the day to hear and to respond. Now, now Christian, please know that this is our hope. This is why we persevere. The the, the word, this message that God has sent us finally in the person of his son is protecting us. It is refining us. But ultimately this word is rescuing us because the battle's already been won. And so Paul asks in Romans chapter eight, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, can your suffering separate you from the love of Christ? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Christian, even though it seems like the conflict with sin in your own life will never end, even though it seems that the battle constantly rages and that feels like the enemy has the upper hand, know for certain that the battle has been won. Because of the gospel, you can persevere. Do not give up. Because of the gospel, We can say with Luther, some words that we're gonna sing in just a minute. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure and one little word shall fell him. You know what that word is, Christian. That word is Christ. Would you pray with me?
take a moment and just maybe confess to the Lord. Whatever it is in your life right now that is keeping you from trusting fully in his word of salvation for you. Lord Jesus, we come to you as men and women who have been so often fighting on the wrong side. In our sin, we've been traitors to you. And yet in the gospel, you have come to us and you have fought and defeated our greatest enemy and you have brought us in Christ to your side. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be men and women who put our faith wholly in Christ. We pray that we would be boys and girls who are not deceived by the enemy. We we, we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would persevere in faith, knowing that you have done all of the work for us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And so now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.